Hello, this is Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. This is a very special episode as Ron and I will step aside and let the wonderful Bonnie Hayes take the reins on hosting this conversation with John Oates. We spoke to Bonnie Hayes last year in episode 22, and you can hear that at AboveTheBasement.com. The last episode had Ron and I sit with John at a book signing event sponsored by The Coop and hosted by the Sinclair in Harvard Square. John is half of the best-selling duo of all time, Hall and Oates, and is also an accomplished solo artist. He is a member of both the American Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Bonnie sat on the Sinclair stage with John to talk about his book, which you can purchase through his website, johnoates.com. In addition, Hall and Oates will be on tour with the fantastic Tears for Fears starting on May 4th. You can purchase tickets at hallandoates.com. So I don't need to talk anymore. Here is Bonnie's conversation and a Q&A with the audience with John Oates, recorded at the Sinclair in Cambridge, Massachusetts. On behalf of the Harvard Coop, we would very much like to sincerely thank the Sinclair for letting us host this memorable event here in such a wonderful venue. Tonight, we are very fortunate and honored to have with us none other than a legendary musician, songwriter, guitarist, and record producer, John Oates. Mr. John Oates will be in conversation with Bonnie Hayes, another prolific singer-songwriter, recording artist, and producer who has had her songs recorded and performed by numerous well-known artists such as Bonnie Raitt, Bette Midler, Cher, Natalie Cole, and many more. Bonnie Hayes currently serves as the chair of the songwriting department at the Berklee College of Music right here in Boston, Massachusetts. Together, they will be discussing John's brand new memoir, Change of Seasons. John began taking music lessons at the ripe old age of five, later on becoming well-known throughout the music world for his work and collaboration with another highly respected and talented musician, Daryl Hall. Together, the duo, better known as Hall & Oates, would go on to record 21 albums, 10 of those becoming number one on the charts, having over 20 top 40 hits, selling over 80 million records, and touring the world over for decades making them the most successful duo in rock history. In 2005, John was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, as well as the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2014. He has also recorded five solo albums and continues to write, collaborate, and release material with other legendary, as well as new rising stars. Surprisingly enough, his story has never been told, until now. In his memoir, Change of Seasons, John shares his highs, his lows, triumphs, and failures. He takes the reader on a wild ride through all the eras, personalities, and music that helped shape him into who he was and who he has become. The prevailing theme always being that of someone truly dedicated and focused on creating great music, not just for himself, but for all of us to enjoy as well. So please, join me now in graciously welcoming our guests for the evening, Bonnie Hayes and none other than John Oates. Right? <laughs> I interview a lot of people. I work at Berkeley. I'm the chair of the songwriting department. And I end up talking to, you know, great songwriters, great musicians all the time. But I have to say, 
this is a big one for me because this music, the Hollow Notes music, was so important for so many of my friends and for me while we were kids. So he didn't really talk about it. You know, this is this is a band that had how many records did you make? It's like fifteen records or something. Mm, it, seven yeah. platinum <laughs> records. Uh, six number one consecutive number one hits. I mean, huge, huge influence in the 80s. And as he said, they've sold millions and millions of records. So I'm even a little bit nervous. No, you're not. I'm usually, I'm usually not very nervous. So I'm really excited about getting a chance to talk. So who has read the book? Has anybody read the book yet? The, the, it just came out yesterday. Oh, I got the, I got the advanced copy. Right. But, but they are all going to read the book. You are all yes. going to read the book, right? Yeah, well, it's actually a great, a great read. So I'm not going to like give away the whole story of the book by talking about it here. I'm just going to ask. I'm, I mean, I talked to John about it backstage. I'm really interested in talking about the music because I'm kind of a nerd about that. So I hope you guys will forgive me when I'm going to go into a little bit more about the music and how it happened. And that's why I was so thrilled that Bonnie would actually moderate this and be with me tonight because... I've been talking about other things with um, <laughs> your average news journalist, and it's really freaking boring. So I love talking about music, so let's go. <laughs> so I want to start by talking about the Philly sound. Okay. Because you guys identified as a Philly band, right? And that was that is a real distinctive sound, even from like the Naz and Todd. Mm -hmm. So, But I wanted to ask you a little bit, just kind of how do you, how would you sort of describe the Philly sound, and how did you guys fit into that? Well, you know, Philadelphia is known for its urban R&B, mostly because of Gamble and Huff. Gamble and Huff, of course, were the, um, the, basically, they created the sound of Philadelphia with, you know, the OJs and Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, the Stylistics, the Spinners, and on and on. Daryl and I both made our first records with Gamble and Huff before they became Gamble and Huff. Uh, Bobby Martin, who uh, went on to become a Grammy Award-winning arranger, who he arranged a Backstabbers and uh, For the Love of Money for the OJs. He was uh, working in a little office on Broad Street, South Broad Street, and we hired him for $100 to do our arrangement no for, way. for my high school band yeah, in 1967. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Daryl did his first record with uh, Leon Huff playing piano and Kenny Gamble producing. So we kind of started with those guys when they, of course, went on to become, you know, obviously changed the world of music. But, you know, if I, if I could just go a little bit go off there. the reservation on the, yeah. on, the, on the Philadelphia sound... Everyone knows Motown. Uh, we know, you know, various other regional stacks Vold in Memphis and things like that. Philadelphia has a really unique history, and I think it has to do with the fact that it was the, one of the first northern cities, right on the other side of the Mason-Dixon line. You had a lot of um, black performers and just black people in general coming up after the Civil War and settling in Philadelphia and mixing with this real kind of white Anglican classical music tradition. So Philadelphia, you know, to get to, you, to the actual music part, yeah. it has this really unique blending of classical music and very, the southern roots of R&B. Right. And I think that's kind of what makes Philly unique. And so like, what are the things in your songs that you would say are the most Philly? Well, <laughs> things like these, the, the chord progressions. Oh, totally, yeah. I the chord that. progressions and the vocal harmonies, especially you, the backgrounds. Oh, yeah. That's a lot I, of I which, which comes from that doo-wop street corner thing, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, which is kind of a also a, a urban city Philly tradition. You and Daryl both came up in Philly, 
you know know each other for it's been forty years, fifth longer. Four hundred. Four hundred. Four hundred years. And you collaborated that whole time. Yes. <laughs> okay, so talk a little bit about how the collaboration process was for you and you know, kind of what it well, takes to be a good collaborator like that. You know, we started out, the reason we got together, well, the reason we really got together was I, I went to Europe for four months after I graduated from college. And when I came back, I had sublet my apartment to Daryl's sister and her boyfriend. And I went to Europe, and when I came back, I didn't have a, a cent to my name. And I came back thinking I was going to move back into my apartment. They didn't pay the rent, and the landlord had put a padlock on the door. So I was standing there with my backpack and my guitar going, uh-oh. And I walked 12 blocks over to where Daryl was living, and I knocked on his door, and I went, hey, your sister kind of screwed me here. Uh, I got nowhere to live. He said, why don't you move in here? And he had this little father, son, and Holy Ghost house, which were three rooms. And I went up into the upstairs room, which had a fold-out couch and Daryl's Wurlitzer <laughs> piano. And I slept on the couch. And every day, Daryl would come up and start playing the piano. And I would pull out my guitar, and we started writing songs. All right. So you'd be playing, you'd playing music. You're kind of jamming. Where do the words come from? You know, at first, we, did, we weren't really collaborating at first, interestingly enough. We were, we were looking at it like two guys who had a few song ideas who would kind of help each other. Uh, and, and we kind of, you know, we've always thought of ourselves as two individuals who, who like to work together. And at first, the songs we were doing together didn't sound that good. He had a very distinct style. He had, he had a very high voice, a very pure voice. He was a vocal major in college. I was kind of bluesy and folky and rough and kind of, you know, crude. And at first, it was like oil and water. And then we, he kind of dumbed it down, and I kind of smartened it up. <laughs> I don't know. Sort of. The, well, the smarted up thing t leads me to it. Helen Hobbs Jordan, who, who you, you, when you say you smartened it up, I, th I think what you mean is that you got more musically sophisticated. Is that kind of yeah. what you meant by that? Yeah. Well, I needed, I needed to go there. I, I, I felt at a certain point I was starting to play with musicians who were, the way they were communicating musically, I wasn't able to keep up with. And I, I could do it because I had a good ear and I was, you know, kind of could fake my way through it. But it, I didn't think it was good enough. So you went to, talk to them a little bit about Helen. And well, in New York City at the time, there was a woman named Helen Hobbs Jordan who, um, she actually, went, as a teenager, she played stride piano on the Transcontinental Railroad. I'm not that fucking old, okay. <laughs> she was my teacher, not my girlfriend, okay. So, um, <laughs> sorry. She seriously, uh, as a teenager, she, she literally played on the train that went across the country. And um, she ended up writing the curriculum for Juilliard. Her, oh. Well, the curriculum in Juilliard was based on her, her, her uh, teachings. She was a professional music teacher. She called herself a professional music teacher. So she didn't take uh, amateur students. She took studio musicians, studio singers, people like that who were actually in the business already who wanted to improve themselves. So when I came to her, the first thing she said to me was, I kicked Paul Simon out. I went, okay, I think I got where you're coming from. And then she said, if you want to get B's, go to college. If you want to get A's, come to me. And she said, I will accept nothing less than perfection. 
I was like, oh my God, all right, let me see what I can do here. And um, I, I studied very hard with her for about six to eight months, and it was very intense, and it really changed, it changed the way I could communicate musically and the way I, I, I could understand, you know, I knew what I was playing, but I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, it really changed me in, in so, many, so many ways. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Did her saying that to you, um, you have to be perfect, you have to do perfect, was that like... It seems to me like you like winning a lot because of all that racing and stuff. <laughs> was that a, was that? I, a I didn't thing? want I didn't want to let her down, and I didn't want to let myself down. Right. So you I, just... I came there for a reason. I I was there to learn, and I said, well, if this is what it's going to take, I'm I'm going to give it a shot because of my touring schedule and recording schedule. In fact, I still to this day don't know how I squeezed this all in while I was actually touring and recording, but I managed to do it. So this is about right after your third record. After um, War Babies with Todd Rundgren. War right. Babies, mm -hmm. right. And Abandoned Luncheonette was the second record. That's right. right? Yeah. So, yeah, I was, uh, you know, while I was, I told you, while I was reading the, the book kind of through the records, I was listening to the music. And I was, I was really noticing how much the sort of the style of the music changed, but it still sounded like you guys every time. And I was curious about, I mean, did you make an effort to kind of synthesize what was going on musically in the culture? Because um, the records changed. A lot. I think, you know? I think we, well, the first three albums, if you look at our first three albums, the first one was Whole Oats, which was really a singer-songwriter, yeah, very folk, kind of folky record. record. Um, it was really a collection of songs that Daryl and I had individually. It didn't really have a, a focus or a, it wasn't written, you know, with a point of view. It was just like, okay, we, we've got an album deal, let's just make an album. Right. Let's take our, whatever we've got, our best stuff. Whereas Abandoned Luncheonette was written in a, a compressed period of time with a, with a point of view and, a, and, a, and we really worked together on it to, to have a, a very, uh, we were very kind of, we had a better idea of where we wanted to go with that record. So that had, that definitely had a musical point of view. But neither of those records were successful. Right. Even She's Gone, which ended up becoming, a, you know, Later, a, a much like classic a hit. hit. Right. right. Um, it wasn't successful initially. So when you don't have a mandate the world isn't telling you that, hey, what you're doing is good because they're not buying your records and you're not having hits. Well, then you can do anything you want. Right. So we hired Todd Rundgren and we went off the reservation. Uh, <laughs> and it was a very psychedelic experience. Todd was doing a lot of mushrooms. And, um, <laughs> we, and we just went in the studio and just created. I mean, there's a solo on our, there's a radio. We, we needed a solo on one song and we didn't have a solo, so we just turned on the TV and put the mic up to the TV, and we thought, hey, this is cool. That's and so Todd. <laughs> it is so Todd. <laughs> um, but anyway, we, you know, so, so here we have three different albums that all had a different, really, styles and points of view, because no one was saying, hey, you can't do that. And then in the 80s, you had the sort of, like, you tightened up the sound, and you got the, like... The drum beat sound. The drum thing. The drum thing. <laughs> the drum thing. Well, we we started producing ourselves in the eighties. Oh, that's that right. That changed that's everything what happened, yeah. because we actually made the records we want. And another thing that was really important in the late seventies, we started to record with our touring band as opposed to using studio musicians. Ah, so. And that was a thing that we always wanted to do, but we never quite felt our touring bands were kind of up to snuff in terms of making the records. But then we really found some great musicians who became our our 80s touring band of G.E. Smith and Mickey Curry and T-Bone and Charlie. And that band was so good, and that's when the whole thing just went like this. Yeah. 
Yeah, having a great band. Yeah. But you didn't really make an effort to kind of change what you were doing to accommodate the culture. Just like you never, you say somewhere in the book, you say, we never tried to write hit songs. Mm -mm. Well, one of the things I'm most proud of in, in our career is that if you look at our hit singles, for instance, not one of them sounds like the other one. We didn't make Kiss on My List 2, and we didn't do, you know, Private Eyes, right. the sequel. Even though there's a lot of pressure, when, as you know, right? God. When you're in the, when you're in the world of commercial radio, and especially in those days, because in those days there was no internet, there was no other way to hear music unless it was it was basically spoon-fed to you by the big record companies and radio. Whatever radio told you, and whatever radio and Rolling Stones said was happening, well, that was happening, and you kind of just went with it. We didn't do that. We, I think, to our credit, we made the records we wanted to make, and then we said to the record company you figure out how to sell this. That was your job. Our job is to make the music. You, you know, your job was to sell it. Yeah, I mean, I really got that, both from listening to the, to the records and from reading the book, where it just didn't seem like there was... I mean, it's interesting, because I work at Berkeley, and kids are always like, what do I have to do? You know, How do I mm -hmm. write a hit song? I mean, do you think that it's worth it for, for young writers now to like study the songs that are out there, the hit songs that are out there, and try to copy them? Or do you think they should just go their own way? I think a lot of people are doing that. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, look, I mean, the, the tried and true method, and it's, it's very old school in style, is that you study and try to emulate the people that you like, the people that you respect, and the music that you, you know, you think is cool. And when you're a young uh, artist or writer or performer, you know, you want to sound like those, your heroes. But then, if you have some creativity and you work hard at it, perhaps an original style will emerge from that. And I think that's, that's the key, and that's what we always did. I mean, sure, you know, I wanted to sound like The Temptations. I wanted to, you know, in the early days, I wanted to sound like Chuck Berry and Curtis yeah, it's Mayfield. it's almost like you couldn't, so you ended I, up sounding I like did you my best. instead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did the best version of that I could. Right. And then eventually, you know, I took the Chuck Berry licks and the, the Curtis Mayfield licks and the falsetto singing and, and you know, kind of translated it into something that was more personal and original for me. Right, and it, and it does end up being really original. I want to talk about the last third of the book. What happens after... Well, we have to t kind of tell them this, that because yeah, they, the, they, they don't know. So basically, <laughs> I mean, know. let's talk about how classy your book is. Cause, so okay. there's this terrible thing that happens to him. This is a really, really, this book really surprised me because when I usually when I read books from rock stars who have had something happen to them like John had, there's a lot of bitterness there. So this book has no bitterness at all. But, but essentially around, right after they'd had this huge string of hits and a bunch of tours and were really, really on top of the world, I mean on top of everything, they came off the road and they didn't have any money. And there was no money at all. And essentially, he had to sell everything. He sold everything he owned. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's known as land poor. Land poor. It, so he had a lot a, of houses. That's, that's an accountant's uh, <laughs> term for you've got no cash, but you got a lot of shit. So sold all of that stuff. Luckily, I had a lot of shit to sell. That was the good part. And, and, but it was a real awake, uh, you know, kind of a what? Uh, and mm -hmm. I think one of the, my favorite things about this book was when you talked about how you saw your future of you sitting in front of a log cabin with a dog, okay, at, which, you know, I, is like a form of visualization. It was. Yeah, so, I mean, do you think you were just wanting that, or tell me a little oh, bit about that. Oh, do I have to get thing. deeply personal here, Bonnie? 
Okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going there. Go there. You want me to go? We, we all want you to go. All right. Okay, well, I, I was married in the 80s. I should not have been married in the 80s. She was a wonderful girl, a fantastic girl from a great family, and I ran around the world like I was a single, a single person because it was the 80s, and if you could imagine what it was like to be on top of the world, a pop star, where everything was being thrown at you, it was, I just didn't have the, I didn't have the fortitude to say no, let's put it that way. So I got divorced, this whole thing came crashing down, our manager left and everything like that, and I just, um, you know, I just realized, well, okay, here we go. Uh, my wife and I had gone to couples therapy because things weren't going well, and it was leading toward a divorce, and we went to see this guy, and I basically lied to him just like I lied to her, Aww. and then we got divorced. And after we got divorced, I went back to the same guy, and he went, I had a feeling you were coming back. And he said, now, so you, now you really want to tell me exactly what's going on? And I did. And uh, he said, okay. He said, I see guys like you all the time. He said, you end up, you got all this money, you got all this whatever, and you think you're going to be happy, and you end up doing this and that, and you, you just go right back into the same cycle right. of mistakes that you made in the past. He goes, you have an opportunity to, to reinvent yourself, to reimagine your life, to be some, you know, to, to maybe go beyond where you are right now. And we started a series of visualization exercises, and I got real truthful. And um, I did. I, I began to visualize. He said, you have to visualize where you want to be and who you want to be as a person. And one of those things that I began to have this, I had these dreams, believe it or not. And, and it's funny, he asked me to write down my dreams, and I said, well, I can't write down my dreams, I don't have any. He goes, you have dreams, you just don't know that. So all of a sudden, these dreams start coming. This is way too deep. No, yeah. it's awesome. Isn't it great? Um, okay, all right. So anyway, I, I came up with this dream that there was a log cabin, and there was a dirt road, and there was a dog, and it was in the mountains and I was living in New York City. And uh, he said, I want you to visualize the people in your life who are negative, who are not helping you, and perhaps holding you back. I want you to envision them coming down the road toward you, and when they get there, I want you to watch them walk on by and disappear in the distance. And I did that. And I ended up living in a log cabin in Colorado with a dog on a dirt road, and happily and nobody, married. And, no, and happily married, and nobody came walking down that road. <laughs> you describe it as the end of your protracted adolescence. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which started when you were, what, like in your mid-40s? Was that about when it was? Shut up. <laughs> okay, man. I'm sorry. I've been 12 my whole life, and, and I'm not planning on... I'm growing... I mean, I have a daughter, but, you know, I've been married. I know that, but <laughs> okay. I, I feel like it's just a great story that as long as that road, that, that train was going, it was really easy to kind mm -hmm. of ride along and not really look at what you were doing or who you were being. I don't think... Perhaps the average person doesn't understand, in, and really, it's almost impossible to relate to. If, you're a, a, if you become a popular star and you you have this okay you're like the center of this little insular solar system of people who all depend on you they depend on you for their salaries they depend on you for their careers right. and it's the band members the crew 
the management, the booking agents, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this constant pressure, and it, sometimes it's subtle and sometimes it's not so subtle, for you to just keep doing what you're doing. And because their lives kind of depend on it. So if you want something, there's always someone there to hand it to you. Right. And I don't care if it's sex or drugs or alcohol or whatever your weakness is, it's going to be easily available. And if, you're, if you have a weak constitution, it's hard to say no. I mean, I know you can't really imagine it, but try to imagine it. I'm sure you can imagine it. I mean, if you think about, I, I, don't, I shouldn't eat that cookie or I shouldn't watch TV for four hours. I mean, whatever it is that you're fighting with, I think we all yeah. have that. Some well, I, you know, I got caught up in that and, and, and I, I went with it. And uh, eventually I had to, you know, I had to grow up basically is what I had to do. Well, I think you're lucky. You know, it's funny because when I was reading the book and you found out that you didn't have the money, I was like, oh my God, Jesus, you know, and then when... Can I, can I tell that story? Yeah, do tell, I tell that story. story of tell them what that. happened? Yeah. I got divorced and I gave all my furniture to, to my ex <laughs> and she moved to California. So I had an apartment in New York, in the village and it had, there was nothing in the apartment except a bed and a television. And then our manager left because Daryl and I weren't working, so why would he want to hang around? And he went to become the president of CBS and then Sony Music. And Tom, Tommy did. Tommy Mottola, yes. Yeah. And then I got a call from our accountant to come down to Wall Street to have a meeting. And he wanted me to come after hours. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I started news. to get a little idea that maybe something <laughs> was happening. So I walk into this room in an empty you know, office building in Wall Street with about five guys sitting around this huge table. And basically, he just said, by the way, you're broke. I said, what do you mean I'm broke? I said, I've got a collection of, I've got a house in Connecticut, two apartments in New York, condo in Aspen, an airplane, cars. He goes, yeah, you got all that shit, but you have no money. I was like, okay. So I walked out of there, and as I walked out, the accountant was an older man, um, and he put his arm around me at the elevator, and he said, I know you probably think this is the worst day of your life. He goes, but this is the best day of your life. And I went down the elevator, and I got in a cab, and I started heading uptown toward my Greenwich Village apartment. And as I was in the cab, I started getting a pain in my chest. And I'm sitting in the back of the cab, and I'm looking out the window going, oh shit, this is how it happens. I'm gonna die in the fucking cab. I'm gonna die in the back of the cab. <laughs> and then as I got near my apartment, the weirdest thing passed through my mind. I thought, this cab driver is not going to get a tip. <laughs> I said, he's really going to be pissed. <laughs> this is what I mean when I I think you're a nice guy. <laughs> I didn't die. Spoiler alert, didn't I didn't die. die. No, I didn't die. And I walked up to my apartment, the empty apartment with the bed and the television, and I went, no. I said, this is not going to happen. And I got pissed off. And I said, okay, this is the beginning of whatever's going to happen is going to start right now. Right. And the next morning, I started selling everything I had, moved to Colorado, Lived there for two years without a car, rode my bike, took the city bus, skied, and I basically started over again. I know. It's all in the books, folks. It's, 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 a, it's, it's way better in great, the book. It's a really a good read, I have to say. It's a oh. great read. So you, you did, though, end up getting some of the rights to your music back? All of it. Yeah, and so talk to them a little bit about, about how that happened. 
Well, it's a kind of a long story, but I'll, I'll try to condense it. Um, the first Rock and Roll Hall of Fame dinner, the Waldorf Astoria, when it, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame wasn't what it is today, very small event. Uh, I was seated at a table next to the CEO of Bertelsmann Music. His name was Michael Dorneman, he was a German fellow. And he was the head of the giant corporation that owned RCA and Arista. Having been on RCA and Arista, they seated me next to him. As it turned out, I, was living, I had just moved to Colorado, and I was skiing and just loving living in the mountains. He, uh, he turned out to be an uh, avid skier, and our entire night we talked about skiing. And I said, man, if you ever want to come to Aspen, you should come out. We'll go skiing. And he took me up on it. It started there and became a lifelong friendship. As we got to know each other better, I began to ask him about all the various things that were done over the years in, on Daryl on my behalf without us knowing it. And he began to reveal what went on in the boardroom with lawyers and managers that Daryl and I weren't actually involved with, but we were signing our names to too, basically. And um, without going into too much, you'll, you'll, you'll understand more when you read the book. But basically what he said was, you know, he, he always felt a little bit, uh, he didn't feel comfortable with the fact that he, the things he had, he felt like he was being forced to do because of our popularity and the pressure that was being put on him by our uh, business representatives, um, that he never felt it was right, but he had to do it because, you know, they were representing me and Daryl. And... Uh, as he was about to retire from this position, and I appealed to him, and I said, listen, I, I know this situation is established, but is there anything we can do to unwind this situation? And he basically went to bat for us. And over a long period of time, we were able to reclaim our writer's royalties, our publishing, and all the things that in the music business are really um, are, are an important and big, big source of income. So in the early 2000s, Daryl and I reclaimed all this stuff that we thought were lo was lost forever, which was, you know, obviously game-changing and life-changing. So um, it, it changed our whole life, and I, I really owe it to him for, for being able to, you know, try to step up and, and make, make something that was really, you know, not right, um, a little bit more right. Yeah, awesome. So it's not all bad. No. No, it's all good. <laughs> trust me. I think it's all good. Yeah. So are you writing? Oh, I'm writing. Are you kidding me? Talk to me. Oh, I am <laughs> writing, writing, writing. I, well, can I talk about my new project? Yeah, please do. That's uh, kind of first of all, all you know, you guys, if you're fans, you'll know that Daryl and I are going on tour this year with Tears for Fears. Yeah. yeah. And we're going to be in Boston at some point, and it's going to be a great show, and I'm looking forward to it. But I'm already working on a project for 2018, because that's just the kind of person I am. If you read in the book, you'll, you'll see that I had, a, I had this really amazing experience of being in Philadelphia in the 60s when I could go to the Uptown Theater and see Otis Redding and James Brown and the Miracles, and, and I saw Stevie Wonder play Fingertips when he was 12 years old. Then I could go to the second fret and the main point, and I could see Doc Watson and Mississippi John Hurt and Joni Mitchell and Phil Oaks and, and all these incredible folk performers. And it was all happening at the same time in this little city of Philadelphia, and I was just, just sucking it all up. I decided, as I've begun my solo career, in order for me to find my voice and whatever that was going to be, what I did was I went back to the music that I loved before I met Daryl. And that was really traditional American music, a lot of Delta blues, Appalachian stuff. I came up with the idea to do a tribute to Mississippi John Hurt because he was a big influence on me. And I know you, you wrote and worked with Bonnie Raitt. Yep. 
Well, Bonnie Raitt lived across the... And Robert Cray. And Robert Cray. My blues people. Your blues people. Well, Bonnie, as you know, is, I mean, she is so authentic in terms of her slide guitar playing. She lived across the street from my friend Jerry Ricks. And she was involved with a lot of these same folk performers and blues guys as they were coming through town. So she learned firsthand. So when you hear Bonnie play, you're getting a link to the real thing. To the real deal. And even though people don't know that about me, I was doing exactly what Bonnie was doing. So um, I wanted to make a tribute record to Mississippi John Hurt. And I started making a very traditional Delta Blues finger-picking tribute record. And I started surrounding myself, but I wanted some more uh, instrumentation. So I brought in some incredible musicians who were playing some unusual instruments not necessarily associated with the blues, like a cello and a pedal steel and things like that. And the record began to evolve into this kind of Americana, early version of roots music. And so I'm calling the, the project Hurt, and I'm going to put it out in 218, and it's, I'm really excited about it. And I, in fact, I'll play a few songs later on from it. Oh, good. It. Yeah. Cool, that would be great. So you, you wrote all, so, all the songs for it? Well, or are you doing I, I wrote some originals, but I also songs. took traditional songs and changed them around. I used elements of traditional songs and wrote new choruses. Oh, cool. Or I changed the melody or the oh, chords a little bit. that must have been fun. Yeah, I, it was like I wanted to keep the spirit and the, and the essence of the traditional stuff. But I, I didn't want to just, why listen to me do that when you can hear the original? So I thought maybe if I reimagine them with a little bit of more of a pop sensibility and some modern recording techniques, I could maybe create something new. Anyway. Sounds like fun. That's the idea. We'll see, see how successful it is. Oh. <laughs> Oh, we're, That's getting, it? we're getting the hook. So no, no, we're having we're too not. much fun. We we're, could do this. For we could, yeah, yeah. We're gonna, yeah, you know, we're gonna talk forever. Um, Are we, we doing Q and A? Can do a Q and A. Do any of you have any questions? There's a mic. If you're brave enough, there's to a walk mic. Up there. You could just walk right up and stand at the mic. There's somebody. Yeah. See, we're gonna get some talking going on here. I was talking to Mootlu a few weeks back. Oh, yes. Mootlu. Yeah, okay. Mootlu. Mootlu's a songwriter from Philadelphia. Young guy. Explaining to. With to me about his writing process. Uh, sometimes it's melody first, sometimes it's lyrics. What, how, what's your process or do you have a process? My rules is no rules. I'll take it any way I can get it. Do you uh, take, is it different? I mean, it is it be, always different? It's or? always different. Sometimes it's a title, sometimes it's a groove, sometimes it's a set of chord, prog it's a chord progression. He does talk about process in the book a lot. No. He says, here's what, you know, here's how this song started, here's how that song started, and they are They're all different, pretty really. different. Yeah. 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 So really, there's no rules. I think if you keep yourself open to the possibility of anything, I think that's, that's important. Oh, we've got, so now we've got a lineup. Line. All right. right on. What's your favorite song to play live? My favorite song to play live? Yeah, solo or with... with <laughs> Deep River Blues by Doc Watson. <laughs> there you go. Fair enough. You want me to play it? I'll play it later. He'll, right, play, sure. he'll play it later. <laughs> uh, the Big Bam Boom album, by the way. Thank you for inspiring me and for teaching me how to play guitar. Yay! Uh, Big Bam Boom. I never hear you guys do Some Things Are Better Left unsaid. Very dark kind of song. Do you remember the video where you're waking Daryl up? Of course, you, you were in the Some video. Some Things Are Better Left Unsaid is from, I, the, <laughs> is from the Silver album. Uh, it's not on a big band? No. You guys <laughs> never play that live. It, it, what is, is there a deeper story to that? It's, it's like really kind of a dark song. It's, I know the chords. Thank you. You so know I'm the blushing. chords. Good. I'm glad you know them because I don't. Um, 
you know, because we never play it live. The thing about the thing about Daryl and I is that we have we we are so blessed that we have a lot of hits that we play our hits. Usually, that's the core of our shows live, um, and we never get into our deeper tracks. We we try to bring a few in every every show, but for the most part, the audience comes to hear the songs they want to hear. So it's a little bit of a conundrum and a, and a you know a little bit of a problem, but it's the best problem in the world to have. Hi, so um, I'm a Berkeley alum. Oh, hi. So, thank you. Hi. 87, 88. I got an uh, A plus in my arranging two and class you from. Uh, no, not ah! well. Yes, eventually, but Come not from back. Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> I know now you can do that part time. But anyway, um, I do have my music degree, but not from Berkeley. Um, so thank you for my A plus in arranging two for my arrangement of Sarah Smile. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but my question is, um, really, really early on, you, you said something about Philadelphia being that, that amazing and unique combination of like these uh, classical influences plus the, the black rhythm and blues. And I'm a classically trained pianist who, but listens to R&B and rock and pop and, and all that. So I feel like I've always had one foot you know, in each world. Do you have a favorite classical um, composer or piece? And if so, why? Oh well, I I'm uh, I I don't know a lot about classical music, but I've always been attracted to the romantic side, uh, Debussy, um, that kind of thing. I, I think the melodies are are beautiful, and I and I like the little bit more of the modern. And I'm I'm and even though I guess he's not necessarily considered classical, I'm a giant uh, George Gershwin fan because I feel like he tapped into the American essence of of classical music. Yeah, I agree. Hi, John. Congratulations on the book. I can't wait to read Thank it. Thank you. Uh, this may be a little bit. To Inside Baseball, but in Do It For Love, you guys did a cover of Someday uh, You'll Know. Can you tell me, with Todd, actually, can you tell me how you came to do that song? I think that the songwriter is one of the great unknown songwriters. Greg, yeah. Uh, how, did, how did you come to do that song? Oh, uh, we were making an album, and our engineer liked that song and said, you guys should do this. It was, it was that simple then. <laughs> and you, like, you liked it. And we liked it. We thought it was a good song. We, we did it. How did Todd be, become part of that song? Um, we just, we like to collaborate. Todd was, uh, we were involved with Todd. We were doing a tour with him at the time. Um, and because we were touring with him, he said, hey, you want to you be on this record and sing with us? And that's, it was just a vibe. Well, thanks a lot. You guys killed it. Yeah, thanks. Hi, John. Hey. Hi. I've been a fan for a very long time, and this is not a musical question, but I've been wondering for years, um, since 1978 or 79, if you ever got the puppets I made for you. Um, wait, honest, wait a I, I swear to God, um, when I was in, <laughs> wait a minute. when I was in fifth grade, I made, um, my friend Kelly and I made puppets in art class. I made Daryl and she made you and I mailed them to you for your birthdays and I never got any response. So I've always wondered if you ever got them or if maybe, you know, I, I love them. Um, <laughs> I love those puppets. In fact, I hung them over my son's bed whenever he had a nightmare. And no, I, I'm, you know, I'm sure we have those puppets. And one thing I can assure you, Daryl has them because he never throws anything away. Awesome. Thank you. I love what you do. I'm thank, a huge thank, fan. Thank you Great for the question. puppets. You're welcome. Okay. Hi. Oh my God, I'm so nervous right now. I can't believe I'm like right in front of you. I mean, we were supposed to be right. married. I, I'm, I'm serious. I am so serious. Yeah, I know there was a bunch of girls that said that. Oh, my gosh. That's why I, I got divorced. <laughs> How was it playing with the Temptations? 
Okay. Oh, you yeah. talking about the Apollo Theater the show? Apollo Theater. Yes. Thing, yeah. All right. Can I can I just go, go real quick story? Go. When when Daryl and I first got together, we had two bands, separately band, separate bands. My band broke up. Two of the guys got drafted into Vietnam. Uh, Daryl had a doo-wop group and needed a backup uh, a guitar player. I joined Daryl's group as a backup guitar player. That band subsequently broke up. But before it broke up, he had one gig at the Village Gate in New, in New York. So we went to New York. We played the gig at the Village Gate. And then he said, he kind of surprised me with this thing. I didn't know him very well at the time. We were just getting to know each other. He said, we're going to the Apollo to see The Temptations. This was 1967. And um, I said, great, fantastic. But what, I, what he didn't tell me was that we were going backstage. And we got to the stage door of the Apollo Theater and knocked on the door and David Ruffin opened the door. And I was like, okay, this Daryl Hall guy's pretty cool. <laughs> so we go into the dressing room and we're with the Temptations. And I'm like, okay, this is freaking unbelievable. Then they take us out and they sit us in the front row of the Apollo Theater and we watch the show. Okay, now flash forward to 1986. We were asked to open, reopen the Apollo Theater after it was refurbished. So we thought, how can we make this night even more special? We'll invite Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin, who are the principal lead singers of the Temps, to come on stage with us. And we recreated that moment. So now I'm on stage, I'm doing the dance steps, the choreography, singing those songs, and I'm looking into the front row where I sat yeah. with him 1967, and I, I rose out of my body. I'm not kidding about this. I felt like I was looking down at myself doing this. It was the most surreal experience I can, I can, um, I can, I can't even describe it. And that was when Daryl and I decided to stop right after that show. We looked at each other, we went, the circle's just been completed somehow or another. It was a, it was like a cosmic kind of it was, a, it was a point where we, we said, you know what, there's only one way to go but down from here. And we took a little hiatus from that. Now, it wasn't the smartest thing to do from a business point of view because we were at the top of the world in commercial and pop radio, but we don't care about stuff like that. Thank you. Great answer. Hi, John. Hi. Um, I may hope to be fiction writer one day, and um, I'm sure you know, as anybody in the creative process does, that there are times when it's just not working. And I, I get very discouraged by that when I'm having bad writing weeks or months or whatever. And I know that you just gotta keep going, but is there anything that you did or still do that helps you get through those times? Well, well for me personally, and I don't know about you, Bonnie, but for me, writing is like exercising, very similar to physical exercise. If, you don't, if I don't do it for a while, it's really hard to get started. Right. But once I get going, it feels like I can't stop. So I, I just disciplined myself to sit down. Luckily for me, in the writing of this book, I was on tour for two years. Uh, during that two-year period, when you're on tour, you have two hours on stage and a lot of time in hotels and airplanes and buses. So um, I had a lot of time to write. So I said, well, rather than just sit around and goof off, I'll just write. You also have a notebook all the time. I mean, you, kept, yeah. you keep a journal. I kept a journal for the entire decade of the 70s. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. do you keep a journal? I, I always Journaling have my writing is, book with me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, journaling is important. I think it just gets you in the attitude, you know, in the position, so that... If yeah. And you capture those, those ideas when they're fresh, and then maybe they sit, and you come back to them, and you, you, know, you, you know, let them evolve somehow. Okay, thank you so much. Hey, John. Hey, man. Congratulations on the book. 
I'm a big fan of your uh, solo work, mm. uh, Feng Shui album. I really Thanks. enjoyed that oh, one. Nice. Uh, Thank you. Uh, awesome. Uh, solo songs, Italian Girls, Possession, Obsession. <laughs> I was actually in a New York show, I, one of the uh, venues, I was asking you if you could do Possession Obsession on, the, on stage. Uh, but I, I was wondering, any uh, ideas to um, uh, like revisit some of your, uh, the, the John songs, like the, your solo songs as a future album, like uh, Keep On Pushing Love, some of those uh, John songs? Well, I might consider doing like kind of acoustic versions of them and kind of bringing them back, taking them. You know, I think there's a big, try to make a big distinction between a song and a record. They're not the same thing. And so if you strip away the production and the technology and the, perhaps the, the, all the players or whatever, the sonic, uh, the sonic elements of a record, strip that away and get back to the essence of the song. It's cool. I do, a, you know, I do versions of, of the old songs that way sometimes. One of my favorite songs actually from Marigold Sky, Romeo's Bleeding. Is there any way to get like an instrumental version of that? I love the instrumentals on that, uh, on that song. Yeah, go to a karaoke bar. If I could, that's a rare, that would be a rare one to find. I don't know. No, I'm I'm not, I'm trying, I don't mean to be flip. I, I seriously, I have no clue. Hi there. Hey, man. Uh, I was just wondering if you had any insight as to uh, how, as your popularity increased, the dynamics changed between you and Daryl, and, you know, if they did or if they didn't, you know, like the friendship, like how much that was. Actually, uh, no. The, the, the dynamics between he and I never really changed. Um, we... We we are very we have a we have a common musical vocabulary because we grew up in the same place we listen to the same radio as kids we uh, like the same kind of music but then we're very different as people in terms of our the way we lead our lives and our strategies and there's kind of this weird yin and yang balance there somehow it's very difficult to explain I, I can't explain it but no we've always been kind of um, we've always given each other space to do what we wanted to do. Um, we've never restricted each other. Uh, Daryl's been making solo albums since the 70s, and I use those opportunities to do other things. And um, so now I think we have a very unique situation where we can work together and we enjoy the work we've, we've, uh, and the music that we've, we've kind of created, but at the same time, we, we can go our separate ways, and we're happy with that too. Thank you. Fast forward to this week. Okay. A big week with Sirius Radio. Yeah. Howard Stern. Yeah, I was at oh, Sirius. Were you on Stern? Well, I was on Stern. No, <laughs> I was on a Howard Stern's wrap-up show. Oh, you were okay. fantastic, is my point. You were was it a good show? Yes, it was a great show. Thank you. And very insightful. And did they offer you a show? Uh, no, but I offered to write a song with Howard. In a half an hour, did he book I you? said, I don't know. He hasn't gotten back to me yet. But <laughs> he, Howard said he was, he, was, uh, he was intrigued by writing a song. He thought, man, I'd like to write a song someday. So I told Gary, I said, tell Howard... Come up with a title. I'll write a song in 20 minutes with him. Fantastic. We'll see. Thank you so much, John. And thank okay. you so much, Bonnie. And thank you, everyone, for all your questions. And I'm going to ask the last question that I think many people might agree is going to be the best question. <laughs> and would you please play us a song or two? Oh, sure. Okay. I'm going to scoot off. All right. I'm going to do a song, from a, a song that I wrote with a young um, Boston songwriter. You guys know Adam Ezra? Well, Adam and I have become friends over the past uh, year, and uh, he came down to Nashville, and uh, we hit it off right away. He's a great guy, and he's a really great, great uh, songwriter and singer. And uh, we hit it off, and uh, the first day we got together, we wrote five songs. So um, I want to do a song that uh, one of my favorites that we wrote together. And... Uh, it's called All I Am. Here we go. 
here we are at one road's end You and me just hand in hand Filled with doubt from where we've been Didn't turn out like we planned All I am Is the ground below the stars All I am Story that's written in scars Stepping steady through shifting sand In the end that's all All I am No map to follow, no friend's advice My folks won't listen, it ain't their life It's up to us and the choice we make Together, will we break? All I am is the ground below the stars. All I am, story that's written in scars, stepping steady through shifting sand. In the end, that's all. All I am. You and I, under dark burning skies I can't be the man you thought I'd be But I'll keep walking if you walk with me Walk with me, oh won't you walk with me Walk with me stars all I am it's a story that's written in scars stepping steady through shifting sand in the end that's all all I am stepping steady through shifting sand How about one more, all right? Um, I want to do, uh, this is a song that I wrote with a good buddy of mine in Nashville named Jim Lauderdale. And uh, if you don't know Jim, you should check him out. He's fantastic. This is a song that uh, we wanted to write, uh, a song that had a traditional Appalachian kind of feel to it, and um, but somehow be a little bit more modern, which is kind of where I'm coming from these days, and trying to take these, these old kind of traditional styles and reimagine them. Um, songs called When Carolina Comes Home Again. Mm -hmm. 
summer is over Frost in the field Something unbroken Something so real I want to live in Love we had then When Caroline Comes home again Time always teaches Seasons renew Mountains and beaches I walk with you Our road is a story Without any end Oh, Caroline Come home again I can still feel you Laying so close Look for a lifeline After you go It's what I hold on to as hard as I can Oh, Caroline Come home again It's all in the letters Love that we made Thoughts that we rode with never will fade What's left behind us is the love we had then Oh, Caroline, come home again When Caroline comes home again When Carolina Thank you guys for coming out. I guess, uh, I guess I'm going to sign some books. I hope you enjoy the book. Thank you guys. So that's it. We would like to thank Bonnie Hayes and John Oates for this conversation and also the Coop for allowing us to record the event and the Sinclair for their hospitality. You can learn more about John, purchase the book, and also tickets to the Hall & Oates tour at johnoates.com as well as hallandoates.com. Go to our website at abovethebasement.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. On behalf of Ronnie and myself and of course Bonnie Hayes thanks for listening tell your friends and remember Boston music like its history is unique
Bridge Over Troubled Waters was founded in 1970 to serve runaway, homeless, and high-risk youth, most of whom have been abused and neglected throughout their lives. The agency was among the first in the nation to recognize and respond to the growing population of homeless youth, a phenomenon which was to become a national issue. For 47 years, Bridge has been a national model and program innovator for youth development services, reaching youth where they're at, helping them overcome the effects of abuse and neglect, and assisting them to prepare for and attain training, jobs, and economic security. Today, as the premier agency in Boston serving homeless youth, Bridge provides its wraparound continuum of care approach to services for 3,000 youth each year. To read more about their services or to learn how to get involved and support Bridges, go to bridgeotw.org or go to abovethebasement.com and click on our charitable causes page.